On February 4, 2023, an event took place off the coast of South Carolina that captivated the country. A spy balloon from China floated across the United States and was in the sights of an F-22 fighter jet. That's never a good place to be, especially if you're a balloon. That is a kill. The balloon is completely destroyed. The U.S. has shot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon off the coast of the Carolinas. The Pentagon had been monitoring the But was it actually spying? Or was that just a lot of hot air? General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, spoke to CBS News seven months after the balloon was shot down. That's after the intelligence community delivered their high-confidence assessment. Here's what he said. I would say it was a spy balloon that we know with high degree of certainty got no intelligence and didn't transmit any intelligence back to China. From the first sighting of the balloon over Montana until a week later when it fell from the sky, it was the number one news story. Everyone was talking about how it would affect the relations between the United States and China. At the Defense Intelligence Agency, it reminded us of a story from 2001. It also involved the U.S. and China and lasted well over a week. It had eerily similar circumstances, intelligence gathering, diplomatic posturing, accusations, denials, drama in the sky, and statements from the president. This accident has the potential of undermining our hopes for a fruitful and productive relationship between our two countries. To keep that from happening, our servicemen and women need to come home. This story isn't about a balloon. It's about 24 American servicemen and women held against their will on an island off the coast of China. There are concerns about national security and a U.S. military flight crew that was forced to make an emergency landing during a surveillance flight along China's southern coast. The U.S. spy plane was equipped with sophisticated intelligence gathering technology. When an American military aircraft makes an emergency landing on Chinese soil, it's a big deal. A very big deal. Shane Osborne was the pilot of that plane, and he made it clear to us why his actions on that day were so significant. I've heard it from President Bush, Dick Cheney, and Don Rumsfeld said it best. He said, Shane, you don't get that plane on the ground. We're in another Cold War. This is DIA Connections. It's close. I agree. Close. Hey, he's very, very close. Oh, yes. He's, he's almost uh, probably 20 feet from our wingtip. So he's inside of our wingtip. When they called me on the third time and said, here he comes again, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I knew this was not going to end well. I immediately went to, holy cow, you know, this has the potential, if we don't handle it right, to drive us back to the relationship with China from Tiananmen from 1989. We have allowed the Chinese government time to do the right thing. But now, it is time for our servicemen and women to return home. Thanks for joining us on DIA Connections. This is our episode called The China Incident. On April 1st, 2001, a U.S. EP-3 Ares plane with 24 crew members departed Kadena Air Base in Okinawa for a reconnaissance mission over the South China Sea. 
The plane was loaded with sophisticated intelligence-gathering technology. It never returned to base. A potential crisis was developing between the U.S. and China. Leading the efforts to a peaceful resolution from Washington was Secretary of State Colin Powell. About the uh, situation with our P-3 crew in uh, China. Let me begin by... In Beijing, all eyes turned to two career diplomats. General Neil Seelock, a defense attaché from the DIA. We anticipate uh, 1600, And Joseph Preer, the United States ambassador to China. And we are concerned that without good regular communications, this situation can worsen. The other point I'd Diffusing like the highly charged atmosphere would be a monumental task. You'll hear about that from both of them shortly. But up first, the commander of the aircraft at the center of the controversy, Navy Lieutenant Shane Osborne. Welcome, Shane, and thanks for joining us to discuss this dramatic piece of DIA history and international intrigue. Let's start with the basics. Can you tell me about the plane? What were you flying that day? It's called an EP-3 Ares. It's a large aircraft the size of a 737, but it's a four-engine prop plane. This is the same kind of plane they fly into hurricanes to do hurricane testing. This isn't some sleek aircraft by any means. Uh, we, we nicknamed it the Sky Pig. There's antennas, dishes, not just on the top, but on the bottom, on the sides, everywhere. You wouldn't even think it could take off. Okay, so antennas everywhere gives me a pretty good idea of what you're doing up there. What can you tell me about the mission? They call us heavy recon, which means we're there to collect intelligence. Our job is to monitor other nations understand how they function, understand what they're up to and what they're doing. We literally cover the full spectrum from uh, signals intelligence to communications intelligence uh, and, and some other things. The flights were conducted in international airspace, but that didn't decrease the probability of being intercepted. In fact, it was actually expected. That's exactly what happened on April 1st, 2001. This time though, something was very different the Chinese fighter pilots were more aggressive than they had been previously. Here's Shane reading from his book, Born to Fly, as he describes some of those early interactions. We were eye to eye, and he was mouthing silent, angry words, gesturing at us with the open palm of his gloved hands as if trying to wave us away. I was gripped by dread. How could he try and fly his plane with one hand in these conditions? The only way the pilot could control the fin back effectively was one hand on the throttle, the other on the stick. And then what happened? It started as a normal intercept, but the, the lead fighter got tight on us. Instead of staying way far away, they started getting closer, closer, closer. Very nice. Roger. A-119 You're listening to the cockpit audio between Shane and the co-pilot from the initial intercept. I asked Shane for his reactions and his interpretations as we listened together. Uh, one's, one's right there in the tackle. Oh, right in front of us. Same altitude. All right. Oh, we got thumped. Thumped that one. We got thumped. Thumped is where they, they go underneath your aircraft and goes vertical right in front of your nose, and you fly through his jet exhaust, and it, it shakes the hell out of the airplane. You drop hard. There's a lot of 
instant turbulence. It's too close. I agree. Still close. He's very, very close. Oh, yeah. He's, he's almost uh, probably 20 feet from our wingtip. So he's inside of our wingtip. He was like two feet from the props in between those engines. I mean, I'm looking at him. I can, I, I can see a zit on his face. Oh, he got himself. A, this guy's having a little bit of problems. He's uh, squirrely, not real steady. He's having a hard time maintaining this airspeed. He's got his flaps uh, down a little bit. Oh yeah, he's having problems. We were only doing 180 knots. Anything below 240 for him at that airspeed is going to be unstable. Not going to come swinging Okay, he's moving out a little bit. He's falling back. Nine two is falling back. He got tight once, he left. Usually they come up, do their thing, show their force, and then leave, go back. Okay, he's coming in underneath here, uh, under the port wing, and tightening up on that side. When they called me on the third time and said, here he comes again, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I knew this was not gonna end well. He'd already almost hit us once. And this time he, you know, he came in too fast and he tried to slow his aircraft down by pitching his nose up and pulling throttle back. But when he pitched his nose up, guess what? The airplane went up and that's when he slammed into our left wing. And it cut him in half where his tail met his fuselage with my far left propeller. It literally chopped him in half. And as his plane broke apart, his tail flew up and went through my aileron and my wing and tore a hole through it. And the aileron's what, what turns the airplane left and right. So as that happened, the aircraft rolls hard left. We're flipping inverted. As we flipped inverted, we had a second collision and the nose of his aircraft hit the nose of my airplane, tearing the nose of my airplane off. The next thing I know, I'm flipped up inverted. I'm looking up at the South China Sea and we're dead. Osborne saw the Chinese fighter jets spiral towards the sea and a grayish-white parachute drift away. The pilot was never found. They asked me all the time, did you start praying? And I said, I'm a man of prayer. I have been all my life. This was not time to pray. I was pissed. I was like, this guy just killed us. And I was mad. The plane fell two miles upside down before Osborne was able to get it right side up. He gave the crew instructions to get their parachutes on and prepare to jump. Saving lives was the priority, but there were also directives. That's the official term, meaning get rid of the top secret material in the event of an emergency and land. But with severe damage to the plane and the base three hours away, that wasn't an option. So I started making mayday calls, started telling the crew to activate the emergency destruction checklist. And what does that mean? Get all the top secret material, put it in metal suitcases, punch holes in it with an axe, throw it out of the emergency exit, and it goes into the bottom of the South China Sea. Nobody's ever going to find it. So, Shane, what about ditching the plane? That's landing the plane on the water, right? Was that a possibility? I couldn't ditch in the ocean, even though I wasn't supposed to, but there's a huge dish underneath. I had no controllability. My nose was gone. That would have dug in with the dish underneath, and we would have cartwheeled, and it would have killed everybody. If everybody would have bailed out, they would have been eaten by sharks or never found. You might have got a few of the crew back, but that wasn't a great option. Using the aviation skills of a superbly trained pilot, 
Shane Osborne was able to land on Heinen Island. The crew was shaken, but unhurt. Then came the unwelcome party. An armed troop carrier with a bunch of guys with AK-47s coming to greet us. I went back to the crew in the tube, and everybody's scared. There's people puking. And I just said, nobody speaks to anyone unless I'm standing there telling you to speak to them. This is going to suck. But stick together and finish the mission. The American pilot radioed that all 24 men and women on board were safe, but they had been ordered by the Chinese to shut down the aircraft. That was the last communication. The Chinese foreign An unprecedented situation was developing fast and necessitated diplomacy at the highest level. My wife Suzanne and I were out in Beijing. I got a call to come into the embassy right away, which I did do. My name is Joseph Preer. I was in the Navy for 35 years, finishing up at SINCPAC, the Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Command, and thence was appointed to be Ambassador to China, where I was on the 1st of April, 2001. I would say within about 10 or 15 minutes, I called Colin Powell, who was the Secretary of State at that time for George W. Bush, And he agreed with the assessment of we need to handle this very well and we need to do it with care and not having outrage be our only reaction to this. Ambassador Preer, I want to thank you for joining us to talk about that tumultuous time. Before we discuss specifics about the incident, I want to ask you to categorize the relationship between the United States and China before the incident. I would say if I'm not too naive, that we had a good relationship and some mutual trust. There were a lot of events going on where the the U.S.-China relationship was going along in a fairly healthy way. So based on that assessment, when you heard the news about the plane, what was your initial reaction? I immediately went to, holy cow, you know, this has the potential, if we don't handle it right, to drive us back to the relationship with China from Tiananmen from 1989. And you knew this needed to be handled delicately. And with that in mind, how did the first meeting with the Chinese delegation go? When I walked in the door, they basically said, your airplane has violated our airspace. Your airplane rammed our airplane. Your airplane landed without permission on Chinese soil, we demand an apology and we demand reparations. I said, well, we disagree on every count. You know, we don't, we don't agree with any of that. So that was the start of the negotiation. <laughs> so not off to a good start. What about going to see the crew on Hainan Island? Was that something you wanted to do? I was very eager, given my proclivities, is to go down to Hainan and see the crew for myself. I really wanted to do that. But when I got to thinking about it, the real battle that I needed to be fighting was in Beijing. It was between Beijing and Washington. So I asked Neil to be our point man in Hainan and sent him down there to check on the uh, well-being of the crew and be our representative there. The Defense Intelligence Agency's defense attaché in Beijing was Brigadier General Neil Seelock. 
He was a natural choice for the position. Fluent in Mandarin and familiar with Chinese culture after spending multiple tours in the country, he was able to easily step into the role asked of him by the ambassador. Neil was an exceptional army officer, and he dealt a lot with the military issues that occurred in the embassy. I knew he would make good decisions. We were on the same wavelength of what we were trying to do. If I remember my guidance to him when he left, it was do what's right. The DIA has a long history of diplomatic efforts, supporting mutually beneficial endeavors, sharing intelligence, and handling incidents abroad before they escalate have been core missions of DIA since its earliest days. It was the perfect spot for a skilled diplomat. Here's DIA historian Paul Isaacson with the general. General Filak, thank you so much for being with us today. To start off, tell us about the role of an attaché, especially in a very high-stress situation. To be an attaché in this particular role, I consider it uh, you're the go-to person, you're the go-to team uh, for the ambassador, for our national government, for the crew. You are the person on the ground with the cultural knowledge, the language capability, and the ability to impact on the situation as best you can. You're aware of the sensitivity of the United States government uh, and their views toward what's going on, but you also have a keen concept of what the host country has involved in the process and the sensitivities involved there. The fact that the Chinese pilot died, did that make things even more difficult than they were in terms of negotiating the release of the airmen? The loss of their pilot in the whole process, uh, I think, keyed their interest in nationalism and uh, kind of a resurgent view of sovereignty that we had not seen previously. Were they trying to create their own narrative to use for their advantage? What were they trying to accomplish? They wanted to tell a story and it actually constructed a computer-generated screenshot that showed their story, which of course, once released to the public, became ground truth uh, for everyone that saw it whereas we knew it would be uh, totally untrue in terms of what took place. Therefore, I, I thought that they were using their media and their mechanism to get their story out uh, much better than, than some had thought possible. I'm sure that you understand that there's a lot of information flowing, uh, but we're trying very hard to keep that in the proper channels and to only work toward the release of the crew. That is our focus from here. I thank you for your cooperation. Your immediate concern was the well-being of the crew and getting access to them. Tell me about the interactions you had with the Chinese officials. What was that like? My relationship with the Chinese officials that were responsible for handling on the Hainan side of our equation was tense at best. They had sent uh, what we refer to as a guerrilla handler from Beijing to lead their Ministry of Foreign Affairs team. Uh, He was fairly antagonistic and tried to make it personal uh, in terms of their negotiation with with us and me. Uh, What we had to do was not pay attention to that, stay focused on the mission itself, unfettered access to the crew and the ability to serve them and get them out of there as quickly as possible. Getting them home was priority number one, yet no one was quite sure what to call them, not even at the State Department. What are you calling these 24 crew members? Are they prisoners, hostages, captives, detainees, guests? I think the term is ambiguous at this point. I I don't have a good answer to your question. 
One thing was clear. They weren't on their way home. And the American mission commander was in an unenviable position. Let's go back to our interview with Shane Osborne, the pilot of the plane. The Chinese began interrogating him on the very first day of detention. I asked what they were after and what they wanted him to say. Admission on camera that we were spies, that we'd invaded their airspace, that we'd killed their pilot. I was a murderer. That was like their main focus. And it was the most ridiculous ever. I mean, it, it was like, are you, you're going to look me straight in the eye and tell me that my big four-engine prop plane hit your little fighter jet? I mean, it was just ridiculous. And I could handle it for a while, but there'd be times where it really pissed me off. They're accusing me of all these things. They're keeping me awake. They're using sleep deprivation on me. And they isolate me from the crew. So I'm in my own room. And my crew, God bless them, they went on a hunger strike until they were able to at least see me at meals. So I was being interrogated six to eight hours at a time. I wasn't allowed to sleep. I mean, they'd let me fall asleep and then wake me up to startle me sometimes when I wasn't being interrogated. So they just wanted to wear you down and get you to admit that this was all your fault and to apologize, right? I made it very clear that there was no apology necessary on our part. We'd done nothing wrong. Accidents happen. That wasn't an accident. It wasn't intentional, but it wasn't an accident, if that makes sense. He was being a hot dog. They were being way too aggressive. You know, they were trying to intimidate us, and they screwed up. And so I didn't want anybody in our chain of command to think that we screwed up because we didn't. U.S. diplomats in southern China meet for a second time with the detained crew of a U.S. spy plane. Ambassador Preer, you were leading the negotiations with the Chinese. What were those talks like? You've asked a big question here. The negotiating process with the Chinese has a pattern to it. Most of us feel like it's a matter of building ladders for the Chinese to climb down. What do you mean by that? What that means is... The Chinese negotiating pattern is everything they want. That's their going in position. And then they leave it up to you that you'll offend the Chinese people. Our feelings will be hurt if you don't do this. And they leave it up to you to come up with some reason to get to some middle ground that is acceptable to both. They insisted that Shane Osborne caused the death of their pilot by ramming his plane into theirs. How did you counter that? This played to a unique strength of mine, being a lifelong aviator and having rendezvoused on Russian bears and stuff like that. I know how it is to rendezvous on, for little airplanes to rendezvous on big airplanes. And they didn't have a clue. It wasn't aerodynamically possible that our airplane could have rammed theirs. The big point is we spent a lot of time arguing over whose fault it was. You know, we were both trying to solve this. The Chinese wanted to solve it too, but they wanted to solve it with a different outcome than we did. As the talks teetered along in Beijing, 1,400 miles south on Hainan Island, 24 crew members were desperately waiting for a sign of hope. Three days into their ordeal, they got it. Shane, Tell me about the time the Chinese guards told you an American representative would be paying a visit. So a very uplifting moment, to say the least. 
They're saying they're bringing us somebody to talk to us, right? How the hell are we going to verify this guy's real, that he's really American, that he's this and that, right? It's like, I didn't trust him. And in comes <laughs> General Neil Sealock, six foot four, cav guy, army helicopter pilot. <laughs> We're like, yep, <laughs> pretty sure this is an American. And then we started talking a little flying just to kind of do some code words, not code words, but just aviation terminology. And I was good. He walked in, he had command presence. It's tough to describe, but you know it when you see it. It's there. When somebody walks in the room, they're not a jerk, they just own the room. And they're there for you, and they aren't taking any shit. So aside from his mere presence, was there anything specific he did to help boost the morale? So what happened is he starts talking, and then the Chinese interrogators and staff start interrupting him. And he only has a few minutes that they're allotting. And they go off on all this stuff. They start repeating all the stuff they would do to us, this diatribe they go through about all the horrible things and horrible people we were. And he interrupts them at the end and he, he looks at him in the face and he says, I'm getting those 30 seconds back. That did so much for the morale of our crew. It was amazing. Like we knew we were being fought for. We weren't on our own have an American general walk in, take presence of the room, and go straight at the Chinese. And why do you think he did that? Because he needed to. That was a very thoughtful, strategic move. It wasn't a hothead. It wasn't somebody just going off. It was somebody that knew what they were doing and understood the culture there and understood that he needed to push back. Here again is General Sealock with historian Paul Isaacson about that meeting. General, after three days, you finally got access to the crew. And you knew how important that was for you, for them, and really for our whole country. Tell us about your thought process while going through all of that. If I could describe what was taking place at the time and the roles that I thought were necessary to fulfill involve an aspect of leadership that I consider a comparison between warmth and strength. You had to project strength, but you also had to be empathetic toward what was going on, empathetic toward the Chinese side and their requirements, as well as the crew and their families. He was allowed six visits during their 11 days of captivity. They were a source of inspiration, but it didn't secure their release. Back in the States, the news accounts of an impasse were accurate. Tensions remain extremely fraught with no resolution in sight. The Chinese foreign ministry said the incident was, quote, entirely the responsibility of the U.S. plane because it veered unexpectedly. American officials. It was a stalemate with both sides playing the blame game. Here again is U.S. Ambassador Prier. We were just banging away on who did what to whom. And it was clear we weren't going to solve the big thing of getting the, getting the air crew out of there if we spent all the time about whose fault is it. And I went back to Colin Powell and I said, this is hard for a lot of people, but my recommendation is we need to set that aside and then move on with trying to solve the problem. And so that's when we agreed to just call it a collision. 
But there remained one big issue still on the table. I think that uh, this issue should be, have been resolved a long time ago. And uh, the United States should apologize uh, for this incident. Ambassador, this was all coming down to an official apology from the United States government, and the ball was in your court. That's when you sent a letter to the Chinese hoping it would end the stalemate. Tell me about that diplomatic gesture. I think I own that one. We spent a lot of time with our language experts. The nuances between regret, sorry, apologize. What do you put in there? What And what do they mean in Chinese? How do you use the words? We weren't going to apologize for the incident. It was really hung up on getting the word sorry, and in one instance, very sorry. I knew I was going to have to live with this. That wasn't a personal thing, but it was, well, it was sort of, but that wasn't the important thing. It was that our nation is not going to apologize to the Chinese for this event. I thought we could say in a human way, we are sorry you lost your pilot and feel bad for his family. That was one. And then the other one was, we're sorry you didn't hear us call for landing (laughs) before we landed. So I thought, okay, those are two things I can say I would have preferred regret. We argued that for a long time, but they needed sorry. And then they distorted that letter a lot once they put it into Mandarin. Those are the two things that we put in that letter, and I kind of gritted my teeth and went ahead and signed that. The letter stated that the United States was very sorry and regretted the loss of the Chinese pilot, but it was not a letter of apology. Here's Secretary of State Colin Powell. To apologize would have suggested that we had done something wrong and were accepting responsibility for having done something wrong, and we did not do anything wrong, and therefore it was not possible to apologize. With respect to the, the Chinese president, Jiang Zemin, accepted the expression of very sorry as consistent with the formal apology they had sought and released the Americans thereafter. That was the ladder we climbed down. After 11 days, the crew came home to a hero's welcome, and our nation's highest award for extraordinary aerial achievement was awarded to a heroic pilot. The Distinguished Flying Cross is awarded to Lieutenant Shane J. Osborne. I want to thank uh, America, uh, the administration, and everyone involved in getting us home so quickly. It was surprising, and uh, we're all glad to be back. Unfortunately, what didn't come back as quickly was the plane. It was returned to the U.S. three months later, but only after the Chinese had exploited it to learn about American technology. One of the most effective ways DIA protects the nation is by preventing war and conflicts, aiding our allies, and encouraging disarmament. It could be argued that there's no better way to support the warfighters than eliminating the need to send them to war. General Sealock and Ambassador Prier's diplomatic actions kept the incident from escalating into a larger conflict with the People's Republic of China. Here are some final thoughts about diplomacy from two skilled diplomats. Ambassador Joseph Prier goes first. There are some negotiations where you get everything, and if you don't care if you ever work with that person again in your life, you can rub their nose in the dirt. And that's one way of doing it. And some people like to do that. The other is, is you have a negotiation, 
and you get the problem solved and you each go away with a lot of what you wanted out of it and then you can continue to have a relationship. And here's DIA defense attaché General Neil Seelock. I really felt it was serendipitous that I'd had the background that I had growing up. The training that I had both in the Army and in the international field uh, with the Foreign Area Officer Program and the Joint Military Attaché System. And things happen for a reason. So that's what I took away from the incident. Days after returning home, Shane Osborne got to meet President Bush. We're really proud of you. We appreciate your mission. But most of all, we appreciate your character. He said that was a great honor. But he wanted us to know he had two more very special moments later that year. And we're thrilled that he shared them with us. I get to do the epitome as a Nebraskan, as a Husker grad. In 2001, Nebraska played Notre Dame for the first time in 40, 50 years. The Fighting Irish of Notre Dame return to Nebraska. So the crew and I came here. I did the coin toss for the Nebraska-Notre Dame game. Uh, had a, one of the best weekends of my life, and I wake up to my mom crying, saying something's happened, and September 11th hit. A little over six months after being released prisoner, I flew some of the first missions in Afghanistan and flew nearly 300 combat hours in 32 days. It's one of the most proud things I've ever done because as huge as China was, that was satisfaction of just getting back in the fight. As a footnote to history, China had demanded a $1 million payment from the United States for housing and feeding the crew, allowing the EP-3 to land and helping to dismantle the plane for transport back to the United States. The final amount agreed upon was $34,567. If you'd like to learn more about the China incident, check out our video series, The Historians, on YouTube. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to DIA Connections. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>